And let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And as we are sorely hindered by our sins from running that race that is set before us, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ our Lord. To him who with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to talk about why it matters that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, the Bible makes this point multiple times from multiple writers. We emphasize this and, and reinforce this in our creed, uh, which we typically have on a weekly basis. And for the season of Advent, I have eliminated it. But when we have the creed, we are confessing our faith that Jesus was born of a virgin. Why does it matter? You can, uh, you can Google virgin birth and come up with multiple articles of things like, must I believe in the virgin birth and, and uh, to be a Christian? Or can I still be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth? I find it interesting the number of people that will spend their time on such things because we seem to want, as a whole, in general, we want to see how low we can have the bar set uh, and, st- and still get in. Could I really not believe this doctrine of the church or that doctrine of the church and still like not feel the fiery flames? All I really want is to be singing on those clouds with those fat cherubim. The easy way out is not necessarily the way to go. Now, rest assured, I am not going to be able to explain virgin birth to you. Like, how's that possible? Scientifically, how's that possible? Yeah, I don't know. But I, my question to you would be, um, is that your greatest holdup? If, 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 it, if it weren't for that one, would the rest of the miracles that are in the Bible be no problem for you? And if that answer, if your answer is yes to that, then I would like your help explaining some of those others to me and then some others. Because the Bible's full of miracles. The Bible's full of things that I, we proclaim as, as truth that I can't explain. I can't explain them satisfactorily in a, in a scientific sense. First off, in the very opening pages of the Bible, God speaks and the whole world comes into existence. The whole world and everything that's in it comes into existence simply because God speaks. You want to talk about something we can't understand. That one's challenging. So we just kind of take him at his word. He said he spoke it into existence, and we say he spoke it into existence. No, I can't explain that one. How do we handle the angel of death in Egypt who wipes out the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but he misses all the Israelites? I mean, we can read the story, and we hear the painting of the blood around the doorposts, and we can understand this making sense in a theological way, but in a scientific way? Or, or the plagues. And people have tried and tried to explain and explain away plagues. And, and people do have ration, rationale for what's been going on there so that they can kind of dismiss it. What about the walls of Jericho falling just because some people marched around it and blew the trumpets? That makes no sense. How do we reconcile this God-man Jesus dying on the cross and then rising again three days later and then eating fish on the shore with his friends? This makes no sense. It's beyond me to be able to explain these things. How do we explain Jesus' healings, his, the signs of wonders that he, that he performed while he was doing his ministry here on earth? Can you explain those to me? How do we explain his ascension? You know, this, 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 these are all things that we've not seen. Nobody's witnessed these things. So to, for us to say we're going to explore the virgin birth and it can't be explained in scientific terms to satisfy our scientific minds. I just want to be upfront with that. 
And I know that in a scientific world in which we live, it can be risky. Say, I believe things I can't explain because the Bible says so, and the Bible is God's word, and therefore, I believe. It is risky for you to take that position. I do understand that. And I also understand that it can be challenging to come to a point where you're comfortable in believing these things or into that position where, okay, I believe these things, though I can't explain them. And if I were to proclaim these in a, uh, say, a work environment, it could be that I would be ridiculed for believing these things that seem ridiculous to a scientific mind. And I, I get all that. But my goal today is not to explain the miracle of the virgin birth, but simply to accept it as it is. And then help us understand how it fits in with God's plan of redemption and therefore why it's important for us to believe it. I don't know that I'm going to achieve that at all. Well, this is what we're going to try to do in this passage of Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy to announce the birth of that promised Savior to the world. Now, this promised Savior has been uh, promised over and over and over again. Um, Beginning in the very first pages of the Bible, beginning in Genesis 3, in the midst of the fall and this curse, if you just, just go ahead and flip back to Genesis 3, it's easy to find. It's the very beginning. God creates man, he creates woman out of the man, he puts him in the garden, they have full, uh, communion, relationship with him, they're able to converse with God. They're able to spend time with God. They're able to be in his presence. There is no shame. And then they are tempted and they eat of the fruit. And then the curse comes in the midst of this curse. In 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of this, he's talking to the serpent. And if, and if you'll recall the story, when they were found out that they had eaten of the forbidden fruit of the tree, then uh, he's talking to Adam, and Adam says, well, geez, it's this woman you gave me. He essentially blamed God. He certainly blamed his uh, Eve, the wife, but then he essentially blamed God for giving him the woman. And then the woman says it was the snake. It was the, the I was deceived. And so in the midst of this, God pronounces a judgment and a curse on the woman, the serpent, and the man, Adam. And in the midst of this curse to the serpent is this 315, which is a promise for a coming Savior who is going to thump the serpent's seed's head. That's what he says there. So this promise carries on, and there's this line. There's a line of the uh, seed of the serpent, and there's a line of the seed of the woman. So that through this line, that ultimately there's going to come a Savior to fulfill this promise that was first made in Genesis 3.15. Now that promise is reiterated multiple times through multiple prophets. And now, Matthew's explaining how this baby is born to fulfill all those prophets' promises. So he spends the first 17 verses demonstrating the human heredity that Jesus had. And he traces this line back. And then in verses 18 through 25, he takes a turn and he demonstrates to us Jesus' divine heredity. So we're going to look at the divine heredity of Jesus. And in that, it's told in the story of Joseph. So we're going to look at the story of Joseph. First, we see a surprise for Joseph. Joseph was not aware. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to dis- divorce her quietly. Has, has anybody been watching the, the Christmas uh, movies, like Hallmark movies or what have you? Really, I'm the only one. Okay, thank you. See, it's, it's, it's church. It's, this is not, we've already done confession, but, you know, here we are again. And if anybody's going to be embarrassed about that, that should be me, by the way. Uh, Becky and I watched one the other day. We, who knows how many we watched, but we watched one. And in this, there's a couple that has a too small of a house to house all the people that happen to come over uh, Christmas break for the holiday. So there are more people, more people, more people, and it's adding all this stress. And then the last one to show up was the wife's sister. And the wife's sister shows up, and there's no room for her either, and they're figuring out how to make room. Of course, that's a big part of the story. But this wife's sister shows up, and she's rather distraught because she has broken up with her boyfriend. Because you got to add this line in a Hallmark movie. She's broken up with her boyfriend because, get this, he is no longer a philosophy major with her in school. They're in college. They're both philosophy majors. And the boyfriend has decided he's going to switch and become a business major, of all things. Well, this girl can't believe this, and she knows that her family would never accept a business major. She is known to be a philosophy major, so she can't accept this truth. She she knows that she will be ridiculed, and in her mind, she cannot reconcile bringing him into the family or continuing the relationship because of this great tension that's built because this boy wanted to change majors. So they break up. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. So Matthew takes a noticeable change from the normal fathering or begetting in these verses before, in these first 17 verses. The Bible speaks of Mary being the mother of Jesus, but it does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. We refer to him easily as the father, but but it, it, we have to go beyond that. We recognize that he did not father Jesus. He didn't make him. This couple, they were engaged, which in our world, we we don't really even take engagement serious. We don't even take marriage serious. Um, and if things work, they good. that's good. If it doesn't, you know. So I had a boy one time work for me in the Loop Center business, and he got married about this time of year. And then it was like February, and he was getting a divorce. And I said, um, whatever my boy's name was, it'll come to me. I said, you, ju- you just said just months ago that till death do us part, not till spring comes. I had no effect on him. I'm sure that he went ahead and got divorced and, you know, went his merry way. But in our, in our world, we, this is a, a little challenge for us to relate to because of our lack of commitment. Because if, if, if we're not, our, our ultimate, uh, goal in life is for us to be happy and we know that God wants us to be happy. That's, that's the kind of world we live in and many times, w- the churches we go to will give us messages that reinforce this. And we understand that that's therapeutic deism. So we want to feel good and we have this God who leaves us alone until we really want something and then he's going to step in and make us happy because that's our greatest concern. In that, if I've married you and you're not making me happy on day six, I could easily walk away. And people do. And and I know this may even apply to some of you. And and I'm not bashing you. Not intentionally. I do want us to do, I, was going to, I guess I am, aren't I? But I don't, that's not my purpose. I want us to understand that we live in a place where we don't take obligations, we don't take commitment seriously. That doesn't describe what's going on here in this story. They took commitment seriously. And so as they were engaged, it would be like, let's say grandmas and grandpas who've been married for like 80 years, 
It, that's that kind of serious stuff. It, it's, this is just in the engagement period. In our engagement, it's kind of like, okay, we're more serious than we were, but we could still break this off. And, I, and, and if that happens, that's not a bad thing. In this time, this is, you're, you're married, you're going to be engaged, and you just don't really drop that for, for whatever reason. This is not a trial period. It's a preparation period. So there's high commitment here. So they would have lived still in their respective parents' homes, and then they would come together only when the wedding took place. But they were committed to each other. Now, you can easily find that, uh, again, it, you can easily find people who will say that this word that we've translated as virgin out of the Greek uh, actually means a young woman. And that there's a more specific word that could be used to describe virgin. However, that word... That, that is supposed to be more specific to the word virgin, uh, or meaning of, is used, uh, it's used less, and sometimes used of married women, too. So each time that this normal Greek word that we see translated into virgin here is used, it's used in the context of a young woman who has not been with a man, a virgin. So that is the context of it. And so when... When people are doubting, they need to come up with more. So they'll tell you about word studies they've done and how this word study of the Greek renders this thing null and void. But that's just not true. The serious nature that they regarded engagement with. If in that time period, while someone is engaged, if she were found to be pregnant, then this is uh, out of wedlock. This is, this is a no-no. And it's, it's you know where we put people on TV today they would likely stone this woman. This is serious. This this is very serious stuff. And for Joseph, there was considerably more pressure than a boyfriend who is changing majors in college business. His family, his community, his religion would all have more of a challenge understanding and accepting this news than we can imagine. Joseph wanted to do the right thing by her and not have her, like, be stoned. So he was going to divorce her quietly. But he was a just man, it says. So he didn't act in haste. So the next thing we see is a pause. We, we saw a surprise for Joseph. Now we see a pause for Joseph. Verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph, not acting in haste, having some compassion for her situation, he waited on the Lord, and in a dream the Lord spoke to him. The word of the Lord came to him and calmed his fears and helped him see God's plan of redemption and the role that he would play in it. Now, I'm not saying we're Joseph's or Mary's here, but God will do the same with us. If we are seeking God in his word, he will calm our fears. He will give us perspective. He will help us understand his plan of redemption and our role in it. This angel gave Joseph insight, helped his perspective. Matthew here traces this genealogy of Joseph uh, through Joseph, through the line of Joseph, and it goes back to David. Luke traces the genealogy uh, through Mary, and it also goes back to David. There are two vital doctrines we're actually dealing with as we consider why it matters about this virgin birth. The first one is this doctrine of original sin. 
And that says that the real Adam, which we've already talked about in Genesis 3, so, you know, if you get time and you're not real familiar, I would suggest reading 2 and 3 of Genesis and kind of help your understanding as to what, what things were. God creates these things, God creates everything, and then ultimately he creates man and woman in his image, and he calls them very good. He's very pleased with his creation. This doctrine of original sin says that they, a real Adam and a real Eve sinned, and then everyone after them is born with a sin nature. We're broken from the start. It's that concept, it, it's, it's different than what we sometimes assume or sometimes are taught, that we think and understand sometimes that we are sinners because we sin. Now, if you could just quit this habit or quit that habit, then you would no longer be sinning. Bert and I were in a conversation with some other people the other day, and somebody said that, well, it's not like I go around sinning all every day. I kept all my mouth shut. I didn't say anything. But my thought bubble, I'm sure Bert could read. And I'm like, yes, you do. And I do. And you do. And when we reduce... God's holiness to right behavior and what's acceptable in society, then we have lowered the standard of God. And yes, we can then meet that. But that's not the standard God uses. God uses his holiness, his perfection. And our thoughts will lead us astray. And in our thoughts, if not our intentional actions, we will sin against him. This is why we confess every time we come to the, the church. It's And we we particularly do that before we come to the table. So the right perspective in this is not that we are sinners because we sin, but the right understanding is we are we sin because we are sinners. We are broken from the inside. It's not those things that we do on the outside that's our, our greatest problem. James says that your problem is on the inside of you. And so on the inside of us, we will generate one sin after another. That's because we have this original sin nature. There's a, a brokenness in us. And it's, and it's not, and it's not just a select few. It's the everybody. Everybody has this problem. And then everything has this problem. Romans says that all creation is groaning for the day of redemption. So there's this curse that's on every man, woman, and child, and on all of creation. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That was not something specific to David. This is true of all of us. And so each human is born into this same fallen condition. Jesus was not born of two humans. He was born of a human mother and God, the Holy Spirit. In this, he was, be, he was able to be born free from sin. If Jesus were born of two human parents, he could not have escaped original sin. And he would have been a creation. He was not merely a man, but he was fully God and fully man. And it's also helpful, I think, for our perspective to help us understand. We, you know, we'd, we'd say, okay, you know, Christmas is Jesus' birthday. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Well, Jesus was with God in the very beginning. You go back to chapter 1 of Genesis, and there's three people present. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's this eternal, ever-present communion he had with God. So we don't want to be confused and say, well, Jesus is like 2,000 years old because he's like forever old. He was in all eternity past. He was with God. And it's, and, and he, he left heaven to come be with us in this human state being born. Verse 21 says, 
she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Interestingly, the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. And Jesus' name means Savior. The name Jesus was a common name. There would have been lots of young boys in Jesus' time named Jesus. But this Jesus, this Mary's boy, he was called Jesus the Christ, meaning anointed. It is equivalent to Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is his human name, and Christ is his title. And Emmanuel means God with us. A few weeks ago, I talked about uh, the covenant and the heart of a covenant, which says, God says to his people, and he says it from the beginning to the end of Scripture, that I will be your God and you shall be my people. In that heart of the covenant, there's this Emmanuel principle where God is with us. God promised that he himself would come and call the sheep unto himself, that he would be among his people, that he would not rely on prophets any longer, that he would come and and uh, call the sheep to himself, and they would hear his voice and they would respond. This is what was going on in, in this scene. In this scene, this is where that eternally past... Uh, Jesus, being with God, leaves the glories of heaven and descends or condescends. He stoops down into what is way beneath him, stoops down and takes on our fallen humanity and lives among us. And then he calls his sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. This is, this is our, this, this is what gives us hope in Parkersburg, West Virginia to be planting a church. We know that God has a people here for himself. His word says that he will do the calling, they will hear his voice, and they will come to him. So we thank God for that, that it's not our clever ways, but it's his word. Finally, we see that Joseph obeys. In verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So Joseph heard, he gained perspective, then he obeyed the word of the Lord, and he didn't cave to the pressures of the world. It took courage to do what Joseph did. He would be ridiculed. He would have to defend, or he would have to take whatever he was given and let the Lord defend his position. He took Mary to be his wife, and the marriage was completed, and he still wasn't with her intimately until after the birth of their son, Jesus. These are what the scriptures say. And they called his name Jesus. They called his name Savior. So we celebrate this miraculous birth because God has come to his people to save us from our sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. O gracious Lord.